0: I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Welcome to Stories for Earth, a podcast about everything climate change and pop culture. I'm your host, Forrest Brown, and today I'm excited to share an interview I recently did with author Alison Stein about her new novel, Trashlands. Set in the near future, Trashlands tells the story of Coral, an aspiring artist working in the region-wide plastic junkyard that is now Appalachia, cleverly nicknamed Scrapalachia in the novel. Allison and I talk all about Trashlands, the widely misunderstood region that is Appalachia, the world's giant plastic waste problem, and resilience. If you want to help support further production of Stories for Earth, consider becoming a member on Patreon at patreon.com slash storiesforearth. Membership grants you early access to new episodes, and it helps me with some of the financial burden of running the podcast. And now, here's my interview with Allison Stein. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Allison. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's great to have you as a guest on Stories for Earth. Um, First, I was hoping you would just tell me a little bit about yourself um, and a little bit on your background. Like, How did you become a writer, and why did you decide to write a cli-fi story for your latest novel?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me and for doing this. Um, Well, I am from rural Ohio. Uh, Everyone in my family was a small family farmer. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm the only one, we're the only ones that really deviated a bit. Although Mm -hmm. I wish I was a small family farmer, maybe one day I'll get back. Um, So I grew up in Ohio. Like I said, I moved around a lot as people do kind of in their early twenties, but I ended up coming back to Ohio when I was in my late twenties And uh, my son was born there in rural Appalachian, Ohio, and I lived there for most of my adult life until quite recently. Um, I started, I actually started as a playwright. Uh, I was very shy as a child, I think due to the fact that I am partially deaf, I was born that way.
0: Mm, And my parents
1: thought forcing me on stage would make me more outgoing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't become more outgoing, but I did really love theater. So I started public (laughs) plays. And then I went into poetry. I published um, three books of poetry, Wow! but I always wanted to be a fiction writer. I never Mm -hmm. had a teacher for fiction and I never really had support for fiction, but I've always been working on novels that just haven't made it out there. And Mm -hmm. last year, my first novel, Wrote Out of Winter, that Mm -hmm. was the first one to make it, (laughs) to make it out of the drawer. And then my second one, Trashlands, appeared uh, this year in 2021.
0: Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. That's exciting. So Trashlands is a cli-fi novel. Uh, Is that accurate, you'd say?
1: Yeah, people are calling that. I think that's very true.
0: (laughs) I feel like it usually goes, the author writes the story, and then after the fact, people start ascribing the uh, genre label of cli-fi to it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, (laughs) Uh, it really, I I mean, I know why booksellers and publishers and and everybody is really concerned uh with that because they want to know where to shelve it, you know?
0: Right, yeah.
1: And in fact, when my family went to look for Trashlands in a bookstore, when it came out, Mm -hmm. we had a hard time finding it. So we're like, where is it? (laughs) Um, But I I had actually never heard of the term cli-fi before my first novel came out. And Road Out of Winter is about, um, a young woman farmer in rural Ohio where okay. I live. and, um, there are two years without spring, two years mm. of unrelenting winter. And so she decides that she's going to have to leave home and, and take this journey and bad mm-hmm. stuff happens of course, but people started calling it cli-fi and I thought, hmm. okay, what is that? You know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually know that was a term. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, as somebody who did grow up in a farming family and is very concerned with the earth, mm-hmm. you know, and nature, that's like a big part of my life. And so it makes sense. And then I realized a lot of the books I'd grown up loving, like Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, yep. uh-huh. that would probably be called Clifi now. Yep, that's so a it classic. wasn't at the time. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's still, or at least in my opinion, that's like the, you know, the I guess the one piece you have to read of cli-fi if you're going to read absolutely. cli-fi as they're calling it now, but okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, just kind of happened naturally organically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Cool. So speaking of Trashlands, um, this is your new novel. Would you mind giving us a little spoiler-free synopsis of the book? Just a quick summary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is the cover. Of the oh, it's beautiful. The video. Yeah, I was really, cool. really pleased with it. Um, So Trashlands is set a generation or two in the future when uh, floods made worse by climate change Mm -hmm. have really restructured the world the way we know it, have redrawn the coast. Um, And it's set in an area called Scrapalachia,
0: which
1: is called Appalachia.
0: Love
1: that. Yeah, it's called that because it's full of scrap metal and jump and also plastic because Mm -hmm. what's left when these horrible floods recede is something that we have a lot of right now. And that's plastic. Yeah. And so there's so much plastic, the characters use it as money, mm. they make furniture out of it, they make costumes out of it. Uh, the main character is a young woman named Coral, who mm. wants to be an artist in this world that doesn't really support that. And it's about her journey. But it's also about uh, multiple characters in this community called Trash mm.
0: Cool. Awesome. I love that idea. Um, yeah, it's kind of a I know, like a lot of people are doing, like reclaimed furniture and stuff now, and you know, mm-hmm. like making a uh, furniture uh, like out of stuff that we would normally consider as trash. So it's cool that you kind of built an entire world around that kind of concept. So that's neat. Um, yeah, and I thought the setting of the book was interesting too because um, I haven't covered it on this show yet, but there is a Barbara solver novel called *Flight mm-hmm. Behavior* that I think would be considered like eco fiction or cli fi You could. Uh, put it in there like any kind of it's just a novel that addresses climate change in it but um, it's set in Appalachia but apart from that I don't really know of any other um, I guess novels in this kind of space that are uh, that take place there so um, I know that you like you said were born and raised in rural Ohio um, in the Appalachian part of Ohio so is that kind of the inspiration for this novel or like what was yeah, your thinking?
1: I mean, um, I was raised a little North of what's considered the Appalachian region. Okay. Um, more of like a rust belt, like gotcha. a factory okay. town where the factories left. <laughs>
0: kind yeah, of yeah. of Ohio. Yeah. Um,
1: so I lived there from when I was a child until I was about 22. And then I went away from home and went to college and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then of course I came back, I came back in my late twenties and I came back a little further South. I came back to what is really known as the Appalachian region, okay. a little South of where I was raised. Cool. And um, I was raised in a very rural part of Ohio, but you know, where I live for most of my adult life in Appalachia is much more rural and much more remote too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We were like 90 miles each way from an airport, Oh
0: wow,
1: um, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And it was a very small town and I became a mother there and I became unexpectedly a single mother there. Mm-hmm. And I was um, really surprised at how my community really became my family. Yeah. And they really took care of me and my son, this very small community that doesn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, really helped each other, helped strangers, you know, help neighbors. Um, and I think that has really shaped me forever. Uh, that cool. kind of community that we found there. And I do, you know, my son was born there. Um, I always consider Ohio my home and our home. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm always just thinking about home when I write, you know. Yeah. And longing for it and writing about both the positive and the negative, even in a story like Trashlands, which is not true. You know, it's a fantastical, <laughs> yeah. speculative story, but it still has its, its bones in my home.
0: Yeah. Cool. I love that. Yeah. I write, and um, when I, whenever I write fiction, I'm from, um, I guess, like the Appalachian region of North Georgia. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I guess it's just there's something just kind of arresting about that region for me, but um, maybe for you too. But yeah, what yeah I found I mean, that whenever I write, it's always set there for some reason.
1: <laughs> and it's also, I'm, I'm sure you definitely know this, you know, an area that people tend to really misunderstand. Yeah, um, like the really whole like, hillbilly
0: elegy thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 You know, like it's very difficult. And so I think that it makes sense that we would want to counter that narrative, even in fiction,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, to be like, it isn't miserable it's very beautiful The people are very smart and loving and resourceful
0: Mm -hmm. and you
1: know this is a great place yeah um and so i think that that's part of it too to be like you know this is a special place and you have to kind of go there to understand
0: yeah yeah very strong sense of community um yeah it kind of reminds i don't know if you've seen it or not but there's a movie called beast of the southern wild that came out Yeah, yeah i think in 2012 but yeah, I just watching that. And of course that's in Louisiana, pretty far away from Appalachia, but I, I feel like that's kind of a similar sense of community like they have uh in that town, uh, as so to what you find around here. So yeah, it just makes me think of that. Yeah, I um, think
1: the rest of the world kind of forgets about you or or writes yeah. you off, you know, then you have a tendency to really band together and really yeah. be like Let's show them what we can do. Yeah, you know? yeah,
0: it's this kind of scrappiness. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, the resourcefulness and the result resilience.
0: Yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, and I guess that kind of plays into uh, the scrappalacha, <laughs> like you <Right>. said, <laughs> in a different kind of way. But uh.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, I know that we kind of touched on it already, but I I do think it's really interesting that the world that you built for the novel uses basically like trash as currency, so. Mm-hmm. I think when I was reading the excerpt for your book um, in this world, like now people have stopped producing new plastic, uh, which we are still uh, unfortunately doing at a pretty alarming rate right now. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's just interesting because like after they've started producing new plastic, there's still just like so much left of it um, mm-hmm. that it's actually valuable. Uh, but now it's like, it's actually cheaper to just make new plastic. It's actually more expensive to like recycle plastic and actually plastic doesn't recycle very well at all, actually. And like most of what you put in the bin doesn't even get recycled, which is awful. But um, yeah. So I guess I was just wondering if you could talk through your thought process behind that a little bit, like uh, why you decided to make plastic a, a sort of money.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it's a difficult thing because, you know, on one hand, I don't want people to think I'm like supporting lots of plastic,
0: you know? <laughs> I yeah. don't. Uh, but I, didn't get that I impression. <laughs> you
1: know, like it's what you have and, and what, what would you have in this world? What would be around? Well, there's lots mm-hmm. of piles of junk, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, where I lived in Ohio, we would have like a junk pile and a trash pile anyway. You know? Yeah. In this year. So, you know, you would have this junk and you would keep this junk around and and what could you do with it? Um, and you're right in that a lot of plastic can't be recycled. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about plastic when I worked on this book. More <laughs> yeah, than I bet. ever wanted to know about plastic. <laughs> I will be haunted for life for this. Yeah, it's day. pretty scary. It is. Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of the numbers on the bottom of your plastic containers, you know, they don't mean anything.
0: Yep. Exactly. Over a
1: certain number, it's just they just throw it away because uh-huh. it is Uh Just throw it away. So, um, I I was thinking, you know, what would be left in a big flood? You know, what would still be Mm. around? And it would be the thing that washes up on beaches now, which is plastic. You know. And what could, if you couldn't get rid of it, you know, what could you do with it? Um, could you make a chair out of, you know, PCV pipes? Or mm-hmm. could you make, um, could you make costumes out of like straws, you know, plastic yeah. straws <laughs> or a splint for a broken finger, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, uh, as plastic is unfortunately limitless right now, yeah. I think the possibilities are, are kind of limitless for what to do with it too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny because right before um, we got on this call, my wife and I, there's like a greenway that we can go walk around close to our apartment here. Um, but it, they built it in like a floodplain. So it's really pretty to walk around. But anytime it rains, the whole thing floods. So yeah. but if you look on the bank anytime, there's always just like plastic bottles littered everywhere. And it's from where it washes in from the street. And yeah, it's just nuts how much there is of it. So It's, I don't know, you'd think that we would, since we have so much of it laying around that we would find a way now to do stuff like that. And I know that some companies like Patagonia, and there are certainly a slew of others that um, I could list as well, but they are doing these things where they're like, uh, you know, getting plastic bottles from the ocean or whatever, and making like t-shirts out of recycled Mm -hmm. polyester. And yeah, I think Unilever maybe was doing some stuff like that too, but yeah, it seems like it could be an interesting model for our, our world now.
1: Yeah, I was um I was surprised when I revised the book,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I feel like when you're writing a first draft, uh, too much research on the front end can stop you from writing, you know, because yeah. you might feel constricted by, oh, this can't ever happen, so I can't write this even in my fiction book. Mm-hmm. So I try not to do too much research before I begin a project, but then in revision, my editor and I did a lot of research on plastic. And- okay. I was really surprised that in the book, one of the things they do is they, you know, fish this plastic out of the river and out of the woods, and mm. they sell it kind of by in bulk, mm. and they sell it to be melted down and formed into bricks that are used to build new buildings and, and houses, oh, because okay. you know wood and various other materials you know, concrete from the ocean floor is difficult to get. So mm-hmm. um, I just made that up, I thought. And then in research, I discovered that that's happening right now.
0: I was Researchers, say, I thought yeah, I saw that. Yeah, they're taking
1: plastic and they're melting it into bricks for housing. Cool. Really strong, durable houses. Yeah. <laughs> um, I even looked into like getting like one of these kits so I could make a brick myself. But <laughs> right now they're very expensive, at least for yeah. some of them, So, but gotcha. th- But they're out there, you know, they're huh. happening.
0: That's cool. Yeah. And I know that um, there, we have like a ton of carbon in the atmosphere that needs to come out of it. So I know that some people have also kind of tinkered with um, using like, I guess like sequestered carbon and like making things out of like pure carbon, like uh, jewelry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting how creative people can get when, right. you know, you have all this stuff like that, just sitting around that needs to go somewhere that's not the ocean or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, um, if, um, you know, like you're saying stuff that would be left over after a flood is sea level like really risen that much that it's like dumped ocean plastic into the Appalachian mountains, or is that not where it's coming from?
1: Well, I mean, in the book, it's sort of risen everywhere. And so places sure. that didn't have a coast like now have a coast.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Um,
1: but you know, all the, all the characters in the book are named after places like cities,
0: okay. um,
1: like Miami and Venice and New Orleans. Mm, okay. And uh, plants and animals like coral. the Mankera Yeah. Bird, okay. Uh, trillium, which is an Ohio wildflower. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah. is a character. Those are all uh, places and animals and plants that are predicted to probably be lost to climate change. Sure. Yeah. If things don't rapidly change, you know. Mm -hmm, Or so I had to, I mean, this was kind of depressing research, but I had to study a lot of maps. Yeah. Of that predicted climate change and how Mm -hmm. the coast of the country would change. And I had to look at all these lists of like plants and animals that are very vulnerable to climate Mm -hmm. change. And then I also had to try to figure out plants that would be more hardy and survive so that the characters have something to eat, you know, <laughs> Sure. I mean, they, they eat a lot of like dented cans that are like really old and like very stale packaged snacks, you know, mm-hmm. like cookies and Cheetos that probably would last a while, but sure. you know, I also wanted there to be um, foraging in the woods, which is yeah, something yeah. that has been important to my family as farmers, you know, and mm-hmm. so I had to research what, what might survive.
0: Cool. Yeah. I think um they're, Like even now there's kind of a turn towards more of um well, I guess just like learning how to live off the land, sort of. Um, and foraging, I feel like has kind of become trendy again, which is kind of funny. I don't know if you um have like Instagram or TikTok. I don't have a TikTok, but there is this um account called Black Forager. Yes, yeah. Do you know her? Okay, yeah. She's so great. Really fun videos. Yeah, it's funny. My brother lives in Chicago and he and his wife found like a puffball mushroom the other day, which apparently is edible. Um, I I've never tried to go foraging for mushrooms. Um, I feel like that's the last place I would start, but you <laughs> like sent my family a picture. They were like going to make like some kind of recipe they'd found making that. And my mom was freaking out. She thought he was going to die. And she was like, is, is your brother okay? Like, is this safe? I was like, mom, I saw it on black forager. It's okay. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, my, you know, like I said, my whole family was farmers and my grandfather's Mm -hmm. on both sides actually supplemented their farming income by foraging. So they would uh, buy mushrooms and ginseng even back in the day and like sell that, you know, for some extra money.
0: I had no idea that ginseng grew in Ohio.
1: Um, That may have been in Indiana where they were doing it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It does grow. Uh, I think it does grow in Southeastern Ohio, but, huh. you know, it's kind of endangered now. So there's a lot more limitations on it gotcha. you know, versus something like chicken of the woods, mushrooms, which are yeah. everywhere, are easy to spot and, you know, are edible. So
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I was going to ask too about um coral as an artist. Um, I started this podcast because I believe in the power of art and I think that it has important role to play in helping us, um, I guess, face the climate emergency. So, and I think that's also something that's just going to become more important as, uh, the climate crisis intensifies. So is that, I guess I'm wondering, is that part of the reason why you decided to make Coral an artist or were there different reasons for that? Or, you know, like what was your experience making that character?
1: Yeah, I actually, um, I'm the kind of writer that I get a lot of ideas and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes too many ideas, but <laughs> I don't remember my dreams very often. And I feel like if I dream a story or an idea for a book, that mm-hmm. I really need to pay attention to it. So I sure. dreamed Coral. Oh, cool! Um, I. I dreamed about this uh, young woman. I knew she was a mom. She'd been a mom young, but something mm-hmm. happened, and her son wasn't with her. I knew she had red hair. Um, I knew that her partner was an artist. He was a tattoo artist, and I knew that she was trying to be an artist too, but it was it was different for her. And I knew that she wasn't going to be just like an oil painter or like a potter Mm -hmm. or something. I knew there had to be like a struggle and a difference there. And um, I'm a big visual art fan myself. And I especially love, you know, street art and junk art and, Mm -hmm. and that sort of found art. And so I decided that that is what she should do, that Even though her job is to take plastic out of the river and sell it in bulk, Mm -hmm. be recycled. Every now and then she was gonna take a piece or two and put it together in like a sculpture Mm -hmm. and like a street artist or a graffiti artist, just leave it, you know, Mm. the fact that her art is you know, she doesn't get money for it. A lot of people don't know she does it. It's most likely going to be destroyed and recycled anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Seemed really important because it seemed very pure, you know, that she just has this impulse to create things, even though she wasn't trained, she doesn't have support, you know, she didn't have money and she's just going to make, she's still going to make, because I think sometimes it's hard. I mean, you know, witness what we've been going through with the pandemic. It's hard been hard for me to be like okay i just need to shut off my brain for a couple hours and work on this fiction story you know Mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to feel like that matters that making art matters when everything is so urgent and scary and um you know but i i think that people still need stories yeah um, and they still need to remember what came before and they still need to dream about what could be you know and i think that as long as we do have art and you know, creative projects, we still have like the hope that things can be better or different.
0: Cool. Yeah. Uh, I agree with everything you just said. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's great. So do you think that um, for Coral then, like, I guess the sort of transformative process of getting to take um, the trash it's everywhere that I would assume for in, in many ways kind of makes her life for the worse, do you think that process of getting to take it and transform it into something beautiful or cool is like kind of therapeutic for her? Does it help her in some way throughout the novel?
1: I think definitely, and I think that there's a part in the novel where she asks herself like, "Why am I making art?" You know, and mm-hmm. and when she first started, it was maybe as a message to someone who had loved her and left very young and, and left her with her son her baby. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then she thought that maybe she was making art for girls like her, you know, who were probably going to be moms too young, who didn't have a family mm-hmm. who didn't have support or any outlet or any opportunities, just kind of a little message for them to say, Hey, here's something beautiful or cool or unique Yeah, that, that doesn't have, um, that we don't know the meaning of, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, because a big part of the book is like, everything's got to be useful. You know, everything that you find, you've got to recycle it or sell it or turn it into something else. You can't waste anything. So wasting plastic to just make an art piece, that's temporary, you know, is kind of a way to have some agency in a life that hasn't had a lot of agency, you know, Mm, and make decisions about an art piece for someone that hasn't really got to make very many decisions.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool, I like that. Um, Yeah, and I was going to ask too, this was um, a question that I was thinking about before we uh, got on the call, but, um, and you kind of touched on it just then, but I feel like in times, well, like this, like you mentioned the pandemic, um, I know I've certainly felt this and I know other people have too, but um, I would feel like in a situation like corals, like it would feel pretty pointless uh, to be trying to do art at a time when it feels like the world is falling apart. And yeah, I I mean, at least for me, I feel like I am always kind of like having a hard time with that. So how does she I mean, I don't know if you want to don't want to give too much of the book away, which is totally fine. But like, how does she kind of work through that or what helps her kind of make sense of that uh, decision?
1: Well, even when the world's ending, you know, there's still people living in the world (laughs) (laughs) until it's over. Yeah, Yeah. until it's over. (laughs) So, I mean, a a part of the, in the beginning of the book, you know, she says something like people thought there would be no more time, but there was, it's just different, you know, it's Mm. time after disaster when we still have to live. So, I mean, right now we're like in a disaster. It's not after yet for most Mm. of us. We still have to live and we still have to, um, you know, go to work and, and pay rent and afford food somehow, mm-hmm. but we still have to try to be happy somehow, too. Um, and we try to ha- have to have something to look forward to and sure. um, something to have more meaning in our lives. So, I think that's part of it, but I think the other part of it for Coral is just really community. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she uh, she is an orphan, so she doesn't, she has to kind of well, she's literally found by the person who becomes her father, you know, Mm, which they also just assemble this found family in this community, which is quite literally in a junkyard, you know? And so they're making family out of people who have been left behind or forgotten about or passed over, you know, and they're assembling this this very tight knit community that really does love and look out for each other. So I think community is how we get through to
0: yeah, I think that's a really big part of it that um, sometimes gets overlooked when talking about like how we're going to adapt to, um, I guess, climate change after, you know, like you said, like after, uh, you know, the worst part is over and we still have to go on living. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talk about, I mean, and of course, I don't want to like discount the uh, the many people who are talking about this, but um, sometimes in like bigger climate conversations, especially with like uh, COP26 and stuff like that, you hear a lot about like, oh, well, we're going to build seawalls. We're going to have like this resilient infrastructure and that sort of thing. And uh, like, we'll have um, like air conditioned buildings where people can go during heat waves and all this stuff, which is good. Like we need to be thinking about that. But I think like community is a really big one that doesn't get talked about as much and is arguably like just as important, if not more important than some of those other things. So, yeah, was, was that part of your thinking in, I guess, designing the world that way or just kind of happened naturally?
1: Well, you know, I think as a writer, I really subscribe to uh, something Dolly Parton said once. Okay, cool. (laughs) Find out who you are, then do it on purpose. You know?
0: Okay, cool. So
1: I feel like in the first draft, I'm just trying to tell myself the story. Probably in in the first few drafts, I'm just trying to tell myself the story. Mm -hmm. And then later on, it does become clear, like these things do emerge, you know? Yeah, kind of crystallize. One of the things that really surprised me about Trashlands, I'd never done this before and I don't know if I'm going to do this again, but it's (laughs) told in multiple perspectives, you know?
0: Okay, yeah. Different
1: characters take different chapters and and they kind of see through the reader sees through their eyes mm-hmm. and I didn't mean to do that. My, my first novel wrote out of winter was definitely just this one woman story. And I thought trash lanes was just going to be Coral's story, but then right away I realized, no, it's, I, w- I want to tell her, her dad's story too. And I, mm-hmm. I want to tell the story of her friend, Foxglove, who works as mm-hmm. a dancer
0: and That's her partner. Name.
1: Thank you. <laughs> her partner who's <laughs> older and is a stick and poke tattoo artist. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I realized, you know, Trashlands, the title came to me early. But I realized, you know, it really it has to be called this because it's a community story. Hmm. And it's it's not a community in one of those cities that's going to be prioritized with climate change, right? It's not in the center of the of the country or on the East Coast. It's in Appalachia, a place Mm -hmm. that you know it's remote already so when a disaster strikes it's going to be even more cut off right so i mean they say that obviously poor people are going to be more affected by climate change right but also indigenous people uh, yeah. disabled people you know um how how are they going to cope if they're not in the city that's given preference totally. or priority you know how is this small community going to make it mm-hmm. and they're going to have to rely on each other
0: yeah that's something I think we need to like really start relearning how to do we feel mm-hmm. like, especially in America, we have like this whole, like kind of, we really glorify like self-reliance. Um, and again, that is kind of another response that a lot of people have to like becoming more climate resilient or whatever is kind of this prepper mindset of well, I'm going to, you know, go live in the country. I'm going to grow my own food, that sort of thing. But yeah, I just wish um, more people would, I guess kind of think that we need to band together instead and like work together instead of trying to be so like self-sufficient. Um,
1: and, and so many dystopian stories are about, I mean, the zombies or whatever are bad, mm-hmm. but what's really bad is when people start turning on each other. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's always what ends up being the downfall of, characters in these stories. So I wanted to mm-hmm. make a story where yeah, there's conflict and, and people go and come from this community, but um, you know, th- they're gonna get through it together on some level.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. I love that. And the telling it from multiple different perspectives, um, I guess another thing it kind of goes hand in hand with uh, this glorification of self-reliance is also a glorification of individualism. Do you think that telling the book from multiple perspectives kind of skirts around that in some ways?
1: You know, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you mentioned it, I'm going to say, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. um, You know, because one thing that I realized when I was doing that, that it does is that people are experiencing the climate emergency at different times too. Sure. Yeah. Coral's like a relatively younger person, Mm -hmm. maybe 30, but kind of like in her twenties, maybe but her, you know, adopted father is, is much older. He's, he's mm-hmm. an older parent, you know? And so he lived through the flood as a child and he kind of remembers certain things uh, Okay. and, you know, tri- uh, Trillium Coral's partner is older than her. Mm-hmm. So he remembers like electricity that came through the walls and, yeah. you know, uh, running water and houses and things like <laughs> that. So thinking about the different characters' ages, and what they went through, and what they might remember, and how they, they view the climate crisis differently, because they've had Mm. different histories, Yeah, and then they're coming together, yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's, in some ways, I think that's kind of, like, reflective of how the the climate crisis is playing out in real life, too, because I think it was, like, this year that um, a lot of people in the northern hemisphere, like, especially in Europe and in North America, really kind of, like, hit home for them, like, oh like crap this is actually happening like this is really bad <laughs> right. like the flooding that we saw like in Germany and, and Italy and all these other places um, whereas you know like before that a lot of people who live in the global south were like yeah of course like what are you talking about <laughs> like yeah this has been going on like where have you guys been so yeah it's it's interesting that you chose to show it that way with people having different experiences around that because I think that is like a really realistic way to portray that.
1: And I mean, most of the people in my novel um, don't have a lot of money. Most of them are poor, but there is still um, like a hierarchy. You know, there's one character, Mm -hmm. Rattlesnake Master, who owns this club at the center of Trashlands. And he feels like he owns all the junk too. Like he owns everything. (laughs) And, you know, he's going to have like, meat for dinner. You know, he's mm. going to have like, uh, air conditioners that run on these old generators, you know, he's mm. going to have diesel versus other characters are, are not going to have that. So, you know, the climate emergency is not being experienced equally and it won't.
0: Right. Be. Yeah. Yeah. That's good that you call that out in the book. Um, yeah. And also, I guess kind of going off that theme, um, I know that in the book, Coral's son I, I think he's at risk of having to work in a factory. Does he have to go in a factory?
1: He does. Yeah, he okay. does have to go. And
0: it was a recycling factory, right? Right. For the plastic. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I think um this is just another great example of like, you know, how it's going to affect people differently and how it already is affecting people differently. But and I think this also kind of like gets a um maybe like a bigger thing that science fiction or speculative fiction does really well. But um Yeah, like I think a lot of people, especially Americans reading your novel, would be like appalled to learn of, you know, this kid having to go work in a plastic recycling factory, um, you know, let alone that he's even like considered old enough to work. But, you know, also that's pretty dangerous work yet um, in a lot of countries where we ship our plastic waste to be recycled, like that's already happening and has been going on. So I don't know. I think. Are you hoping that maybe that can sort of open some more people's eyes to like the way that the world actually already is? Or um, did you have a specific reason for doing that?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I knew that um, it, first of all, that just like you said, our plastic and our electronics junk you know, mm-hmm. goes to other countries, our clothing waste you know, goes to other countries. And their task was sorting through it and dealing with it. Yeah. Um, I also knew that, you know, children do a lot of that work in a lot of countries, you know, Mm. they pick through landfills or or they, you know, sort to try to electronics, to try to find things for money. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's very dangerous work. It's not just dirty. It's, you know, you can be hurt, you can be harmed. Yeah. um, Sorting through that stuff. And so I knew that there were going to be these plastic bricks that they they melted down the plastic to make these bricks and mm-hmm. i knew someone had to make the bricks and it's usually the most vulnerable Vulnerable people who do the work that nobody else wants to do, you know, exactly work right. And so, in this world, it's it's children who are the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And in revision, I realized, well, you know, their hands, their fingers are going to be smaller, so they're going to be better at picking out the plastic and like putting yeah. it in molds. But that's just like a justification for, you know, making the vulnerable people do the exactly. work that we don't want to think about, which is happening now for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah and also, that's kind of like the same reasons that like industrialists back at the beginning of the 20th century had for like opposing child labor laws, like working in like a textile mill or something like, Oh, their little hands are better, which is just exactly. so insanely like messed up. Yeah. But yeah. And I think, um, I, th- I want to say it was Wisconsin. I'm going to get it wrong, but I think recently some state did make like a temporary adjustment to their child labor laws, did you see this? Do you know what I'm talking I about? But
1: I could, I could see that because of the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, like the labor shortage or whatever, um, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, well, clearly the solution is not to pay people more. It's to, you know, re- go backwards on child labor laws, which is just insane.
1: We don't really learn from history very well. No, I
0: don't we think. don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but, um, hopefully, yeah, you know, I think that is like one thing that, um, I guess like speculative fiction or science fiction in general is really good at though um creating these um, situations where it's easier to talk about these things. Um, I, I don't know, like, do you kind of have that same mentality about like speculative fiction? Well, one, it can like warn us about things that could happen that are bad, but also it can show us the things that we need to be working on now. Is that kind of like your philosophy about that as well?
1: Well, I mean, for me, it just, it really comes down to the story and being true to the story. Sure. Yeah. And- yeah. I didn't set out to write, I didn't set out to write sci-fi. Yeah. I also didn't set out to write a book that's like, you must recycle and use less plastic. Right, yeah. But it makes sense because, you know, these are important things to my life. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that they would find their way out even in fiction. Sure. But I also do feel like sometimes... Uh, fiction especially can help change people's minds, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, if you're involved in a story, if you care about the characters, if you think about the world after the book is over, you know, it it may stay with you in a way that just lecturing somebody or writing an op-ed or something may not Mm -hmm. not affect people quite the same way, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think about the books that I love like Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin and Angela Carter Mm -hmm. and you know there are always messages buried in those books, if for nothing else than what the writer cares about and what matters yeah. to them. And and I think something important that we don't talk about enough about speculative fiction is that there is hope in it too. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's not just the end of the world; it's like the beginning of a new world. Exactly. And like how might we go forward mm-hmm. know what
0: happened? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um, I think that that is like one thing that you kind of run into when or especially I run into it sometimes like running a podcast about climate fiction, which often tends to be dystopian. Um, it's and like, I, I'm not necessarily like a huge fan of dystopian fiction. Um, I started this podcast because I care about climate change. And I think that literature and climate change can intersect nicely to kind of help each other out. But um, yeah, it's like people will pick up a book like parable of the Sower um, and be like, Oh, this is so depressing. It's so dystopian. I'm like, no, there's so much cool shit in here, like (laughs) Earthseed, like that's such like a radical idea. Um, And I feel like that could be, I mean, actually there is like a real, I discovered this after reading the book, but there is like a real church of Earthseed, or I don't know what they call themselves, but there's like an actual group of people who like kind of live out those practices. Yeah, I think it's, they have a website, actually, I found it, (laughs) but I'm going to have to to investigate
1: that after this. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'll send it to you. It's super interesting.
1: (laughs) That would be amazing. But I agree with you. I mean, it it frustrates me. Like sometimes I try not to read reviews, but already some people label my book dark. You know, it's like dark. Yeah. Well, like everything is dark. I mean, we're living through a pandemic right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dark. exactly. Dark. But there's so much hope there and there's so many ideas for how we can go forward. Mm-hmm. And I read speculative fiction thinking about that. Like I felt that way yeah. about sour too. Like, yeah, the world we know it is like burning up, but here's this new idea that's so mm-hmm. radical and cool. Yeah. And- So much of science fiction, as we know from the past, ends up happening, you know? yeah, not science fiction so much as realism that just hasn't happened yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it.
1: (laughs) So we might look for it for clues as to, you know, ideas to make things better too.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that, you know, maybe just when people are, I think maybe a lot of people just aren't taught to read like dystopian fiction that way, or they're just not primed to read it that way. So I, I think it helps if you kind of read it with a little bit of imagination um, to think like, oh, well, you know, like, I guess we're kind of just trained to focus on like, oh, this is sad or this is dark or something. But at the same time, you know, there is a lot of cool stuff that can come out of that. And I think like um, if you read stories like that from the perspective of seeing how the characters um, kind of figure out a way to deal with that, that can be pretty empowering, actually. Um, and it takes what might otherwise be labeled as like a depressing story and like kind of an inspiring story. Um, I think a depressing story would be one where the characters have like no agency exactly. kind of like wallow. And, or are stuck yeah. sort of, but yeah. And they don't
1: make decisions or they don't try, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so much of hope is just trying, you know, if exactly the, if are like yeah. still living, then that's, mm-hmm. that's trying, that's going on.
0: Yeah. I like to say that hope is a verb. So it's not just yeah. like it's not just I like, like a feeling you have, it's you know, like it's uh an act of doing, I guess, of committing yourself to something. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess um going off of that, um I'm wondering, like, what helps the characters in this novel keep going? I know that Curl has her art, but even that, it's like she kind of struggles with the question of, is this a waste of time? Is this, like, meaningless right now because of all the suffering in the world? Or, um, But what are the ways that some of the other characters kind of cope?
1: Well, um, art kind of functions in all their lives in different ways. Okay. Not art so much as like beauty and the idea of like sort of making beauty where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her partner is a tattoo artist and he really views that as art that's alive, you know, mm-hmm. that lives as long as the person lives. And sure. Um, is very devoted to that, and um, you know there are other characters that are that are dancers in the book, hmm. which they don't consider art so much, but you know they do things like they decorate their trailers that they live yeah. in junkyard and uh, they make pretty clothes out of plastic and you know out of <laughs> yeah. recycled materials and they out of plastic like make birthday presents for each other and, mm-hmm. and you know make cakes for their birthday so the idea of, of trying to find beauty in whatever you have uh, trying to find ways to celebrate you know mm-hmm. the characters may not know their birthdays because you know there's no real way that, to to sure. keep track of time as we have it right now it's different mm-hmm. but they decide what day their birthday is going to be and they celebrate <laughs> that day you know That's cool. Um and I think also uh Coral's father is a teacher and he doesn't have much to teach from he just has this very old incomplete water damaged version of encyclopedia britannica <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which you know, it's already been a while since the last print edition came out, and this is future, so it's a little outdated. But I think just the idea that there are still children, children need to learn, children mm-hmm. are going to go on to the future. I think that helps them keep going too.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's interesting that like we these kind of things come up when we're talking about stories like this because I think like in a lot of ways that's how human culture always has been. Like we uh, just make something out of what we have and then find a way to make that beautiful. And I think that's how like a lot of cultures developed over the years. Um yeah. yeah. I think a lot about like um like Italian food and like southern food. Um you know like those were like cheap ingredients. Like that's why a lot of those dishes exist. Right. Um like a lot of like soul food that we eat in the South is you know it's not because it was like you know gourmet dishes or whatever. A lot of it, like enslaved people carried with them from West Africa and it was just what they had. And, you know, that's like how that kind of cultural tradition was born. So, yeah, I I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon just because we have climate change.
1: I mean, I joke that my favorite foods are trash foods, but they really are trash <laughs> foods. I they're mean the best foods. I love ramps fried in bacon grease. You know, ramps mm. are like beads that like grow in the woods, but yeah. they're really good. You know? I've been wanting
0: to try ramps.
1: Oh, they're delicious. They're delicious. And they're good to forage too because they they're pretty distinctive looking. Okay. Um, so they're and if you find one, you can find like a patch where there's like just dozens and dozens, which Gotcha. okay.
0: Yeah, cool. I don't know if we have them down here, actually. <laughs> I don't know if
1: we do either, but yeah,
0: I think they're further north. But oh well.
1: But it's also interesting because those kind of foods have become, you know, once like chefs in fancy cities discover them, yeah,
0: they're,
1: like, expensive and mm-hmm. they're like you know a fancy thing, and where where like at home we find them in the dirt, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but, totally.
1: Yeah, it's funny how people's perspective can change. I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think that's cool. Um, yeah. And then I guess um, we got like, a, don't we're kind of running out of time here, but um, I was going to ask you, um, I know that, like sometimes um, guests that come on the show, they have a certain organization in mind um, that kind of helps with some of the issues raised in their story. Um, I just always like to ask people, you know, if they have one that they would recommend or, you know, some way that you can get involved, if it's something that you care about, It doesn't necessarily have to be related to your novel, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, um, where I lived in Southeastern Ohio, there's so many like mutual aid and community groups. Mm -hmm. Um, but one group that is really wonderful, if you're interested in Ohio and that part of the country is the Nelsonville food cupboard. Okay. Um, Which is a a food pantry that, you know, really helps the whole community and really serves a lot of people. And they could always use support. Um, As far as like the environment and nature, you know, that's a really big part of life down there. So there's multiple organizations. Mm -hmm. One is called the Raccoon Creek Partnership. Okay. um, Because that was, it still is a little bit, a uh, former coal mining area. Sure. There's a lot of damage to the creeks and the waterways and cleaning them up is sort of a big part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the Athens conservatory, which is concerned with like nature and wildlands. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like big national organizations, I always tend to go small when I can, yeah. um, because I like this grassroots community work, but totally. I'm also a fan of the nature conservatory. Okay, you know, cool. Say. I like their mission of buying wild land and just trying to preserve it.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. That awesome. was
1: something that uh one of my grandfathers did when I was young and that oh, really? really wasn't a thing, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Buy a parcel of woods and just leave it.
0: But mm-hmm. that was
1: important to him to that's cool. scrape up enough money to do that and just leave it wild.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I told my wife the other day, I was like, if I ever just randomly come into like a large amount of money, (laughs) like, can we do that?
1: I (laughs) want to do that too. Yeah. It would be cool.
0: Yeah. Or like donate it to the city or something and be like on the condition you can never develop this. Like if you want to put like walking trails in it, that's fine. But (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, I guess before uh, we close out here, um just going to ask, like, where can people find Trashlands? Um, what's the best way to keep up with what you're doing uh, in terms yeah. of new writing? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you can find Trashlands wherever books are sold. Um, cool. We had kind of a, a interesting first day of publication because it was sold out at some place. Oh, really? That's awesome. Which never happened to me before. I guess it's a good thing, but it was stressful. Um, <laughs> they just had a rush of pre-orders, and but they have them in stock now. They, ha- cool. they sent okay. more copies. They are in stock wherever you get your books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, just hit my name, at Allison okay. Stein. Um, both my first and last name are spelled strange. <laughs> my first name says one L, and my last name is S-T-I-N-E. Um, I'm on Instagram at Allie Stein Writes. Writes as in writing with a pen. Mm-hmm. And I also have a website, which is just my name, AllisonStein.com. And um, yeah, I have a newsletter too called The Village Witch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love um, that.
1: <laughs> about creativity, but also, yeah, it's about a little bit of foraging and, and nice. herbalism and stuff. And you can find that on my website too. If you want to sign up, you can sign up for free.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's all my questions, Allison. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me and and thanks for doing this work. It's, It's really important
0: stuff. Oh, thank you. And everybody listening, make sure you pick up a copy of Trashlands wherever books are sold and follow Allison online. Thank you. Stories for Earth is written and produced by me, Forrest Brown. The music you heard in this episode is also by me. To support further production of the show, consider becoming a member on Patreon at patreon.com slash stories for earth. We're on Instagram and Twitter, and our website is storiesforearth.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.